0: Hi, everybody. I'm George, and this is The Best Little Horror House in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest is a writer and host of Struggle Session. Leslie Lee the Third is here. How's it going, Leslie? Oh, it's going great. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, happy to have you. Uh, we had your co-host of Struggle Session, Jack Allison, on to talk Day of the Dead. And when he was here, he said that he was a fan of the genre, but not nearly as big a fan of the genre as you are. Is this something you've been into for a while or a more recent passion?
1: Oh no, I've always been into horror. I think god, no the earliest memories I have of like watching movies are like, you know, horror movies like Nightmare on Elm Street oh, yeah. and um a guy and one thing I like that was burned into my mind was the box art for Evil Dead 2. I didn't re- I it took me I, because I remember my dad had it in the scene where like the skeleton gets out of the ground? Oh yeah, uh, yeah. I, that was seared into my brain as a child, way, 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 way too young uh, for me <laughs> to actually see it. Because because but yeah, my dad was always a big horror fan, and he passed that love on to me very early.
0: That's awesome. Was it what like when you guys were watching stuff together? Was there a subgenre that you found yourself watching a lot of? Like, did you watch a lot of creature features or paranormal stuff?
1: Um, you know, when I I didn't really specialize until I got a bit older. I kind of just generally like any horror movie that was like on Showtime or whatever. I was down. Even I remember I begged the my parents to order Killer Clowns from Outer Space on oh, pay per view. classic! <laughs> pay per view. I was so excited seeing those pay per view commercials running. I begged them to order it and record it. And I used to watch that um over and over again uh when i was very young isn't that's not the type of horror movie i would generally gravitate to now but for is i was just almost loved anything with it uh what was a uh, phantasm too my dad was a big phantasm fan. oh yeah and i was always like watch it over his shoulder or whatever
0: yeah we have uh we have a lot of phantasm fans more than i expected to be honest but
1: you know i i I recently went back and watched it, and they really hold up quite well, at least the first couple, yeah.
0: Yeah, they they have this really cool like dreamlike quality to them that I really enjoy. And speaking of dreamlike qualities, perfect segue, nailed it. (laughs) (laughs) We're talking about the 1987 John Carpenter movie today, Prince of Darkness, the second in the Apocalypse trilogy, falling between The Thing and In the Mouth of Madness. Now, I, I gotta say, this is definitely the one that gets talked about the least of the three. Do you like the other two and, and you think that this is just a standout or do you think that the things that carpenter does different in this movie is something that makes it a, a much better movie than the other two
1: no i definitely i don't think it's better than the other two i think it's probably better than in the Mouths of madness i don't mm-hmm. think it's better than the thing because i don't think anything is better than the thing honestly <laughs> uh but I, you I, I, have I, me on to talk about the thing that, that true. was already taken. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I, I pulled out another one that, you know, does deserve to be talked about. And it's Prince of Darkness. I Absolutely. remember I, I watched this movie like well after this was completely off my radar until like years after I already seen the thing and other, watched all the Carpenter stuff. Even after I watched In the Mouth of Madness, because as you said, more people talk about that than this. But I saw mm-hmm. someone post the the dream clip. That oh, dream yeah. clip completely out of context. Um, somebody had just posted it on a forum, and I was like, What the fuck is this? <laughs> what could this possibly be? What, what is this? And and then, like a little while later, a DJ that was listening to I was in the rave scene, and a DJ sampled that quote in a record that was a fairly popular record, I think, and most people didn't know what it was. And just seeing those two things, you know, concur. I was like, all right, I got to stop what I'm doing and watch this this before (laughs) it comes for me or in my dreams. And I was really pleasantly surprised by, you know, Mm-hmm. By its style, um, because it, it just feels like a, di- it's kind of a mashup of a few different genres. You got the Definitely. obviously the Lovecraftian elements, but then it's also like a haunted house story at the core, <laughs> kind of like a thirteen ghosts or yeah, uh, yeah, uh, where, or House on Haunted Hill, where you got a bunch of people in a haunted house trying to survive. It's a apocalyptic <laughs> story. It's like a, it's got a little bit of like zombie movie elements yeah. to it. It's just you know a lot going on with this film. And and I really enjoy. It. I still like going back and watching it every so often. It, it never fails to, you know, keep me interested uh, throughout.
0: Yeah, I think you really hit the nail on the head in terms of the way that it bends genre and kind of brings a little bit of so many different awesome elements into one thing. I feel like one of the reasons that this does get talked about a little less than some of them is because. Although Carpenter did write the screenplay, he wrote it under the pseudonym Martin Quatermass as an homage to the fictional British scientist Bernard Quatermass and the writer behind it, Nigel Neal. He said he did this because a lot of the story elements are ones that Neal used a lot as well. Uh, do you like it when directors utilize the same cast? I mean, Carpenter is known for kind of using the same people in a lot of his movies, and that's certainly the case with this we get Donald Pleasant showing up uh, who is also in Halloween we get the pe- uh, a bunch of people from Big Trouble in Little China as well do you like when people kind of have their favorites or do you feel like it kind of takes you out of it and makes you feel more like you're watching something
1: oh no no not at all i like when people bring back the actors because i mean regardless for people who don't know struggle session uh, we, is a podcast about where politics and pop culture interact and we are socialists and we want we care about the people who make the things that we enjoy oh, yeah. and i like seeing uh you know these you know d de- level actors getting a regular paycheck you know what's yeah. wrong with that nothing's wrong with that that's that's good i like it yeah
0: and you have some really talented actors in it as well yeah. so it's not like he's just picking up any jabroni off the street
1: absolutely, <laughs> you know? absolutely. well with alice cooper he kind of did <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but alice cooper is really good in this i but i think mm-hmm. one reason why this film maybe doesn't get talked about as much is that you know The thing, the star is Kurt Russell, one of the greatest movie stars of all time, certainly in the top 50. All right. And with, you know, in the mouth of madness, you have not quite a mega star, you know, but still like a top, top level character actor who can, you know, is still like a leading man. He's still a leading man. Um, In this, you have, you don't really have a standout actor. Um, Yeah. Not that they're not good, but they're just not, you know, it feels if you told someone, this was a TV movie they would like believe you, right? Like if you Yeah, yeah so that that's kind of where it, it is as, as far as star power goes.
0: Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think that a lot of that comes from the fact that Donald Pleasence is first build and I feel like that's atypical for him. And Carpenter said that the inspiration for this movie came while he was researching theoretical physics like you do. Yeah. <laughs> and he wanted to pair the idea of the ultimate evil with the matter, anti-matter stuff he was learning about. And so he came up with this crazy idea, and he went to the newly formed Alive Pictures, one of the first independent movie studios, and he he had just signed a multi-picture deal with them, and for each one of the movies that he was going to do, he got $3 million and complete creative control. And so, I mean, that's, that's exactly what you want out of a John Carpenter movie, yeah. in my opinion. <laughs> And they wound up shooting it in just 30 days, which is remarkable to me. Yes.
1: I mean, cause it does seem like a, a movie that takes place on a rather large scale. Like, I mean, even across, t- it spans time in the cosmos, but <laughs> it's still, a, uh, but it, you know, it, I guess a well, month Then That is really amazing. And it, there's so many characters and so much going on. It could have been like a mess. Maybe some people do think it's a kind of a messy film. But I think it. he more or less, you know, basically pulls it off and gives lots of characters, lots of arcs, lots of mm-hmm. little storylines going on throughout. And all of it ends up uh, with a, a satisfyingly bloody and also kind of like... Um, existentially horrific in.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that also that messiness is kind of on purpose. You know, a lot of Carpenter's movies like to keep you off balance. And one interesting way that he did that with this movie was actually by shooting with a wide-angle lens and using an anamorphic format. So there was lots of stretching and distortion with this movie. So that, plus the dream sequences, and I, I, I really feel like it's it's something that he was going for. And so people who list that as a detriment of this movie, I'm like, well... Then I think that it's just not maybe, it's maybe just not the movie for you because, uh, you know, I, I think it's part of the point. And you mentioned Alice Cooper the previous year. Alice Cooper had done several songs for the popular Friday the 13th, part six, including Teenage Frankenstein. And Cooper's manager, Shep Gordon, was also the founder of Alive Pictures. And so he was an executive producer on the movie, suggested that Cooper write a song for the movie. And not only did he do that, uh, releasing a song with the same name. He also appears in the movie as one of the homeless mob, sort of the leader of it. And boy, like he's really great in it. <laughs> like, I think he's very intimidating. In
1: yeah. Like he's a, you know, certainly a different type of, uh, movie villain, but you know, mm-hmm. certainly a believable one. Um, he, like, you know, he, he did the thing, you know, rock stars going into film is not the highest bad average, but uh, as, but this one, he knocked out of the park. He, uh, did he did like just enough to be creepy and scary and not make you think of oh alice cooper in fact in fact it took me a while when i was first watching it because uh, i thought it was just maybe somebody who was like inspired by the look of alice cooper Mm -hmm. as opposed to him himself in
0: classic carpenter fashion critics were extremely harsh on this movie when it was released saying it sucked and it was cheesy and i'm curious why you think critics get it so wrong with carpenter so often
1: I mean, at the end of the day, he is a genre director with no higher illusions. Like even mm-hmm. someone um, like um, the director of uh, The Fly um, and Cronenberg. Yeah, Cronenberg. Like Cronenberg, he ended up doing prestige mobster movies eventually. <laughs> um, right. And John Carpenter, he just has like zero interest in being anything other than a genre director and i think a lot of them are still mad at him for inventing the slasher movie as well <laughs> i think i think that was a rough time for film critics
0: i i agree with uh, pretty much everything you said i think that a lot of it um not only his passion for proud horror that tries to that doesn't try to be something it's not but also i think he has a real predilection towards the surreal which throws a lot of people And so when they're like, uh, I don't like having to think about it, (laughs) then they wind up uh, labeling it cheesy and, and not not enjoying it. But like many of his movies, this has also gone on to become a cult classic cult pun intended on that but yeah it's a lot of fun and the movie starts and literally the first thing that happens is that john carpenter score kicks in and god this guy is just so sick on the synths like
1: yeah it's incredible i i love his music so much because it's so simple right like it's so yeah. simple like you could do this Uh, Like, he, he, it's always like one note at a time, you know, very simple stuff, but so, so, so perfect for where he's going for and so haunting. Like, it it freaks me out sometimes because I will start hearing like some John Carpenter in my head about my day. I'm like, but I won't realize at first, like, what is this (laughs) ominous sound that's in my head? And I was like, oh, that's from The Thing. Oh, that's from Prince of Darkness. It's just, it it infects you with these very simple, simple uh, melodies.
0: Yeah, I I think that that's something that he does perfectly. We actually had uh, Caroline Williams, the star of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 on the show. And she uh, had a lot of compliments for Carpenter saying that he, him and uh, Toby Hooper did very, did score very similarly in that they just kind of imply at you Uh, yes (laughs) and i think that that really is exactly what they're doing where they just kind of give you like the the their theme songs for the movies and all their scoring and everything are very simple like chord progressions that that are are so simple but because they're simple they're able to stick with you because you don't have to worry about like
1: oh how did that song go (laughs) no no it's very uh clear very haunting i and really like uh unfortunately you know he i've he doesn't direct anymore because his eyesight not the way it used to be. But he's still out there making music, and even like he goes on tour with his son and stuff. So uh, yeah, it's cool stuff. Yeah.
0: And so we hear that John Carpenter score, and the we first see a death right away. Where the body count starts at one. <laughs> he has this cute little chest on his chest. It's like this little tiny thing. Donald Pleasance is another priest, and he he walks in, and we get some really fun teases. To set the stage for what's going to happen, a little glimpse at his journal, Pleasance pulling a key out of the chest, that sort of thing. Where I, that's something that I love that Carpenter does is where he doesn't really just throw you in. I've seen a couple of movies where they're really just like, okay, here you go, we're in it. And with Carpenter, he really lets you enjoy the atmosphere and really let you soak in it.
1: Yeah, yeah, he t- uh, he takes his time and does, and it, it's not he do, it's not a very long movie either, but it still no. feels like very still still and not like hectic um yeah for the most His part pacing is great yeah yeah it's uh really like and it just kind of lulls you in because you really don't know where it ends up going i and this is you know of the um apocalypse trilogy all of them are you know related to HP Lovecraft and Directly uh, references work. But this is the one that I think is actually the most straight up like a Lovecraft story because you're starting off with these academics investigating something, peering to the unknown. The thing is, you know, about by, by a bunch of burly men in the wilderness. The uh, the, uh, In the Mouth of Madness is about a writer, which H.P. Lovecraft, I think, did a couple of times. But this is about a bunch of uh, dorks breaking accidentally breaking about (laughs) the end of the world. And I think that's the uh, closest.
0: Exactly. And to your point, Donald Pleasance, the priest, he invites these quantum physicists, Professor Howard Barak and his students, to join him in the basement of the monastery belonging to quote unquote, the Brotherhood of Sleep, which is, first of all, great name. Second of all, it's an old order who sometimes manages to communicate through dreams. And there's this really incredible dead on shot of Pleasance as he's composing the letter to invite them. Just really spectacular work. And something I really like that they do in this movie a lot, especially at the beginning, is dialog scenes. And I think that it shows how much Carpenter trusts his actors to communicate with just body language. Do you like when he does this in this movie as well?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, one of the things that makes me dislike a lot of modern... Film is that we're constantly being yelled at or screamed at, even especially things we don't need. Mm-hmm. There's no more, there's a, or at least a lot less visual language and in conveying information through the visuals because that's how you can convey a mood too, uh, mm-hmm. you know. And I think this film does a really good job. And I'll say, like, from an aesthetic standpoint, for as far as horror goes, I really generally hate every single exorcism movie besides the exorcist and this as core is kind of an exorcism movie too with the references to the catholic church that's a that's a big departure from the kind of, sort of cosmic horror elements that the film bor- borrows from usually you either have like religious like demon satan god horror or you have this cosmic horror that has you know maybe a unclear nameless pantheon of nefarious beings out in space but even though it you know has is more of the catholic side i still really enjoy the aesthetics of this and i think he does a, a Carpenter, just his visual style, makes even this thing that I see when I see it in every crappy exorcism movie, makes me roll my eyes constantly. (laughs) Carpenter is smart enough to make like this brotherhood, like the basement where they have all those crosses. He makes it look creepy as fuck, actually. Oh, yeah. yeah.
0: So they, they have this basement that you mentioned with all these crosses in it, really spooky stuff. And the priest requires their assistance in investigating a mysterious cylinder in that basement. Containing this creepy, swirling green liquid. Yeah. Described as Pleasance as a secret that can no longer be kept. <laughs> <laughs> he's so good at these dramatic line deliveries. I mean, even just in Halloween when he's like pure evil. <laughs> this is That's his bread and butter right there
1: yeah and I really like that we start off you know following like two older men you know plays the, the, the priest and Victor Wong playing the uh, professor like you just don't see like a couple of old dudes being the leads in anything and it's kind of nice to see that it's, it gives a film a look a different vibe almost mm-hmm. makes it makes you feel like the adults are in are trying to be in char- no not that, that the adults are in charge but we thought they were in charge and they already failed by the be- beginning and uh, uh, you know that the uh, young people have no hope.
0: The the fact that like, oh, we trusted them and now <laughs> it's yeah. escaped their hand. Yeah. How can we yeah. have any hope? Yeah. And uh, there are 13 academics present, including uh, the wisecracking Walter, who is played by Dennis Dunn. We also have Kelly, who is played by Susan Blanchard, and Brian Marsh and Catherine Danforth, who are played by Jameson Parker and Lisa Blunt and everyone does a really admirable job like I mean as you said before they're they're really not exactly A-list actors but I mean everyone's doing so well and I think that part of that has to do with the script being really great but also I I think that just the fact that Carpenter is willing to give them a little bit of a leash like it, it definitely seems like they're loose on this set and and letting them kind of really embody the characters, I think really makes the movie work on a level that maybe belies the budget.
1: Yeah, because if you look at any scene that they're in... They're always they're they're at work they're they're doing st- if one person is being focused or two people having conversation the other guy's in the background you know fiddling with some dial and it always seems <laughs> like it it, it it really is a, both the location and the acting like you feel like this is a real place these are re- this is a real space this is a building you could walk into and explore yourself and the way that the actors inhabit the space and the way that he shoots the space makes that just it makes it feel so real and all the more uh, terrifying when you end up trapped uh in this place in this space with uh the father of satan
0: yeah and i think that a lot of the work that they're doing is not it works as just like tone setting and everything but it also i think they do a really admirable job of making sure that it also helps with the plot like when we meet brian and Catherine. They're discussing, like, Schrodinger's cat and how common sense breaks down at a subatomic level, and, I mean, the the way that that applies to later things, like, uh, when you first watch this movie, you're just like, oh, it's just a bunch of dorks, and then (laughs) afterward, you're just like, oh, uh, I understand that this is dealing with these subatomic particles and the parallel nature of uh the way that superposition works quantum superposition so pretty interesting stuff
1: yeah and and this is before like quantum physics was so popularized you know by Mm -hmm. like years before like uh brian green or those did his like little pbs special talking about this is like cutting edge -edge stuff to be uh putting in a b-horror movie
0: yeah absolutely it is Not only are things creepy going on inside this church, but things outside the church are bizarre as well. Um, We've seen a couple shots already of a bunch of, like a a colony of ants going just wild. But we also see um, a homeless woman making repeated gesture to the sky and then later, a group all staggering in a line, just staring upwards and like just watching the academics. And it genuinely scared me when the academics look out the window and just can see them staring. Like, I genuinely gasped. <laughs> <no> <laughs> and uh yeah it really scared me
1: <laughs> yeah there's, there's lots of creepy imagery and this. the bugs usually get me mm-hmm. i hate hate, hate even though you know when they use the spires they look a little fake but it's still it's still a bug so it still fucking yeah. creeps me out
0: <laughs> so the academics are they're all investigating what's going on and they decipher some text found next to the cylinder which describes the liquid as the corporeal embodiment of satan And the computer, it's very uh, like alien, the way it just like that you focus on the screen printing out the text like that. And I really like it. And it's a pretty cool list of titles, the way they roll it out. They're like, Mystery, Babylon the Great, The Mother of Harlots, The Abomination (laughs) of the Earth. I'm like, oh, hell yeah. He's getting the full the full announcement here.
1: <laughs> yeah, this is back when, you know, we thought co- we weren't really clear what a computer could or could not do. It was <laughs> a very good time for horror movies cuz you mentioned the thing or this or the fly uh takes advantage of that as well. Oh, like yeah. we didn't really know what computers could or couldn't do <laughs> or how smart they were. You could you couldn't do this one now, I don't think.
0: <laughs> yeah, people yeah, people would be like, "Uh, that's that's not how how things happen." <laughs> but the liquid does appear to be sentient and it's broadcasting increasingly complex streams of data. And the academics use this computer to analyze the data and find that it includes differential equations. And it's incredible to me that it includes differential equations is set as a scare line and it kind of works.
1: <laughs> yeah, because I mean, math, aren't most people scared of math? I mean, oh, yeah. come on, like, if, <laughs> if this understands a math that you don't, then that means it can only be malevolent.
0: <laughs> That's how I live my life. I assume everyone who knows more math than me is out to get me. <laughs> One of the group tries to leave and finds this freaky-ass pigeon crucifix. <laughs> then he's promptly murdered by Alice Cooper who uses the impalement machine that he actually used for his performances on stage during that time, which I thought was pretty cool.
1: Oh, that is cool.
0: (laughs) And there's also a lot of really great hypnotic shots of the swirling liquid, kind of like from a distance, which again, I think um, just goes to your point about how John Carpenter knows how to take these things that could be corny and use his visual style to make them impressive. And, And like I said, they're just hypnotic the way that it's it's from a distance if it was a little closer I don't think it would have the same effect but it puts you in the shoes of the people who are like afraid to get too close to it but can't help but look at it
1: yeah the swirling is just so good and, and like whenever he zooms in it drips it's like dripping upside down oh, yeah. it doesn't make any sense uh, you can't even tell like where you are you just know it's like there and seething. And with uh uh the one of the doctors gets sprayed. <laughs> that it's is just like looks like water, but it's so like freaky and scary because obviously you would never want anything to do with that. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Even if it was
0: just water, <laughs> you'd be like, Oh, it's nasty, thousand year old water. <laughs> and I also really like that Carpenter is just like throwing weird shit in like Jesus was an alien who came to warn us. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And then having a Pleasance give these dramatic speeches about how the Catholic church covered this up and they're just pathetic salesmen clutching to power and the illusion of benevolence. You're like, John, take it easy, man.
1: Yeah. I I like that. Yeah. This is an exorcism movie for atheists. (laughs) basically.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. It is. And uh, like you said, this liquid is escaping and, People who get sprayed with the liquid become possessed by the entity attacking the others. And, I mean, they're all distracted with what they're dealing with. So the fact that they just heard this uh, whole story about Jesus being an alien, you know, they're, they're coming to grips with that. And then meanwhile, out of nowhere, these people start attacking them. And again, the score is great here. It has this great pulsing synth a lot of great deaths that are very different from each other. It's got a really great variety, considering that they're kind of in a bottle here where they're not able to explore a lot of different environments.
1: Yeah, like, uh, you know, at a certain point, it does turn into, like, a slasher movie, but a very good one. You get lots of really kind of (laughs) gruesome people uh, being taken out uh, gruesomely, while at the same time there's this larger cosmic menace out there it's like the end of the world and you know a slasher movie at the same time
0: yeah and and this force is uh, they theorize that satan is actually the offspring of an evil more powerful force of evil the anti-god who is bound to the realm of antimatter. <laughs>
1: Ah, that's so cool yeah (laughs) you will not be saved by christianity you will not be saved by plutonium you in fact you will not be saved (laughs)
0: yeah it's like nothing scarier than caps lock on (laughs) (laughs) and uh yeah and and he, he it's great it really is great and the survivors find themselves sharing a recurring dream showing us a shadowy figure emerging from the front of the church this dream sequence that you were talking about it's super iconic now at this point i mean these dream sequences are great i find that dream sequences are so hit or miss that the fact that he's able to pull them off is a huge plus
1: yeah i mean so many bad dream sequences the good ones are really good this one, I, it's not even really a dream sequence. It's a nightmare sequence. This is, right. you know, what what uh, David Lynch is trying to do uh, <laughs> usually. Like, I, that's how, you know, creepy um, it is. Just like a really, like, haunting but very simple thing. Not really a big effect, but, like, what it is. is just, like, it's so haunting. Uh, it will stick with me forever.
0: Yeah, like you said, it's not really, like, it, it looks great, but it's not this huge effect. The way that they achieved it is Carpenter first shot the action uh, of the figure played by Jesse Ferguson with a video camera and then reshot it on a television set in order to give the image um, like a dislocated Uh, feeling so that it felt more alive, um, which is, I think, a really cool trick that he used.
1: Yeah, that really worked.
0: The transmission changes slightly with each occurrence of the dream, uh, revealing progressively more detail. And the narration was actually done by Carpenter himself. And it tells the dreamer that they're witnessing an actual broadcast of a tachyon transmission from the distant future of 1999. <laughs> and it's, it's hard not to laugh when they're like, oh, yes, uh, so far in the distance. And then it's like, oh, wow, that was tw- uh, 20 years ago. Now. <laughs> but it's, it's still very fun. And uh, they need to stop this dream from coming to fruition. I love that Carpenter makes sure to spend some time, like, just being scary. Like, the scary guy is actually just a head held up with bugs. Liquid defies gravity. Someone cuts their own throat and then gets back up.
1: Yeah. And, like, when the lady gets all, like, her skin, like, she's all, like, burned in her skin is all fucked up. Uh, It's so creepy. And then she gets attacked after (laughs) that. Like, there's just so much, like, weird stuff going on when it uh, sprints towards the finish.
0: Yeah, and it is sprinting. I mean, Walter is stuck in a closet and he witnesses the people who've been possessed bringing the cylinder to the sleeping uh, Kelly. And it opens and the remaining liquid just goes into her and it transforms her into the physical vessel of Satan. And like you said, she is just gruesome. <laughs> like her skin is like sloughing off of her. Yeah, it's like a burn. She has telekinesis and can regenerate. It's just awful to watch her turn <laughs> into this thing. And she tries to summon the anti-god through a dimensional portal using a mirror, but the mirror is too small and uh, the effort fails. And... One. We also see the guy who cut his throat laughing maniacally, and he's reaching out for a mirror. And there's this real emphasis on reflection in this movie, which I really like. I think it's a really important theme, is kind of this good and evil, dead and alive, quantum superposition, antimatter and matter, kind of there is no one without the mirror position of it. And and that seems to be something that Carpenter is really trying to explore in this.
1: Yeah, and the suggestion is that we've had – we've uh it's no longer our turn right yeah. <laughs> like our, our, our time in the spotlight of the I mean, as the matter universe uh it's over it's done and uh it's time for something else to take over
0: the rest of the team is occupied fighting the possessed people and kelly finds a larger wall mirror and does actually draw the anti-god's hand through it and danforth is the only one who is free to act so she tackles kelly causing both of them to fall through the portal and the priest Shatters the mirror with an axe, trapping Kelly, the anti-god, and Danforth in the other realm. (laughs) Donald Pleasance is, like, so psyched that he did this. (laughs) He's just thrilled.
1: (laughs) While Brian Marsh is uh, very upset because he was... uh, had feelings for, uh, cat no, they were in a relationship uh, him and Catherine Danforth, and he has to sacrifice, you know, this love, uh, love his in order to save the world.
0: Yeah. And we see Danforth on the other side of the mirror, reaching out to the portal before it closes. So uh. very heartbreaking to see that. And immediately the possessed die. Unhoused people uh, are, well, they wander away and the survivors, Marsh, Walter, Professor Barak, and the priests uh, are rescued. And he seems to have gotten his faith back, too. So, you get a nice ending for the priest, which I feel like is kind of atypical for John Carpenter. Just be like, yeah, okay, this one guy can just have a happy ending for him. Yeah.
1: <laughs> but just for him, because immediately after that, we get the updated dream sequence that oh, yeah. shows Danforth uh, now being the vessel of mm-hmm. uh, the our Lord of Darkness, uh, Prince of Darkness, uh, actually. And, yeah, there was all they managed to do all our professors managed to do was um change the future slightly but not stop it
0: exactly and and he has this dream like you said and he carpenter gets us even at the very end (laughs) he's like all right dream sequence he wakes up you're like oh man that was scary it's it's still happening but he finds kelly still disfigured lying in the bed with him (laughs) So, a second dream sequence, and he awakens screaming, and you're like, Carpenter, you son of a bitch, you got me. (laughs) Rising, he approaches his bedroom mirror with his hand outstretched, and God, what? A final shot this sequence is so so great the way that he is just so drawn to it again there's kind of that hypnotic quality do you like this final scene or do you do you think it should have ended either before or we should have seen more or like what, oh
1: no no we we got just enough we got oh, just yeah. enough right there
0: <laughs> yeah i totally agree and so much of this movie is, is working in, like in its own individual parts but leslie we've actually reached the part of the show now where we explain and we summarize why this is the best horror movie ever made not counting the thing, <laughs> and, yeah. and uh, I'll let you you kick us off.
1: All right. Well, uh, Prince of Darkness is the best m- movie ever because this is John Carpenter at his most Lovecrafty, and in spite of you know the explicit references in the Mouth of Darkness. Or, you know, the great Lovecraftian entity in the thing. This is the one that most plays out like an actual Lovecraft story. You start with our academics and our fallen priests, and then you go from there into, you know, this really dark. A place where you get, you know, all types of horror, you know, haunted house, slasher, um, cult cult horror. You have, you know, you have and then you also have the cosmic horror behind it all. It, It ends up in a place where even though our heroes can temporarily think they have stopped it. All they've done is cha- shifted or changed the inevitable very, very, very slightly. And I just, uh, this is Lovecraft, this is Carpenter, perfect marriage. That's why Prince of Darkness is the best horror movie ever.
0: I think you've, you've hit it exactly, and I, uh, I live in Philly, obviously, and on the end of my block, is a church that in the 70s used to house a cult. And so, <laughs> I every time I walk past it, I think about this movie. <laughs> and the fact that this movie, which it's astounding to me that this isn't talked about more because I think that it is the best horror movie ever made. I think that Carpenter does such a great job with it. And the fact that, it, I mean... People don't even consider it one of his best is astounding to me. I, I think that it brings together so many different genres in a way that makes all of them interesting and and does credit to each of them while still creating a whole that is better than the sum of its parts. I think that he's able to get incredible performances out of actors who were maybe given a little bit of short shrift and could have uh, could have gone on to bigger and better things. He does a great job with them. This, the direction is amazing. The way that the shots are composed is spectacular. The effects are great. and it is like you said earlier, this is an unabashed genre movie. He loves that he's making horror. There's like he takes time to be scary in addition to all of these great existential questions. And to me, that's what makes this the best horror movie ever made. Leslie, this was fantastic. I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. And uh, why don't you tell the people where
1: they can find you? Uh, you can find uh, Struggle Session at patreon.com slash Struggle Session. Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Oh, absolutely. Uh, and as far as me, you can find uh, the show on Twitter at LittleHorrorPHL. That same username applies on Facebook and Instagram as well. There's merch on TeePublic. So if you're looking for a zombie Benjamin Franklin or... Uh, gritty on the Child's Play cover, uh, we got you covered. (laughs) And yeah, so go do those things. Rate and review the show if you're enjoying it. If you're not enjoying it, don't do those things. (laughs) And that's it. So yeah, bye everyone.